We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Judges, and you've heard the passage that we're going to be studying today, but let me have you guys turn, if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, turn back two books. Uh, keep one finger in Judges chapter 2, and turn back two books to the book of, uh, of Deuteronomy, uh, to chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, it's going to give us some of the background of this story, and we're going to be able to see exactly what the Israelites were disobedient to, what those specific commands were. Uh, here back in, in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, we find that God had given Israel some very explicit, direct instructions uh, regarding what they were supposed to do as they entered into the promised land. So if you've got your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 7, let's start with verses 1 to 5. We read this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. And I think it's pretty safe to say that that's, uh, that's not leaving a whole lot of gray area. Uh, the, the, the directions could not have been a whole lot more explicit. They should have known exactly what they were supposed to do as they came into the promised land. They were instructed to go into the land and clear it out, not only of all the people uh, from these foreign nations, but they are also supposed to destroy every altar that had been built for a false god, every altar that represented worship of an idol or a false god. They were to destroy it, and they were to burn any carved images with fire. And I fear that... In our culture today, we read something like this. And we see the instructions to, to destroy the people. And we say, wow, that's just that's so barbaric. How can a God who is love give that kind of instruction? How can a God who not only loves, but who is by his essence love, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, how can he give this type of command for military intervention, which is how our culture might interpret something like this. I mean, wouldn't we get a, just, a, just a wee bit upset if our president uh, had commanded this type, of, uh, this type of action? So why is this any different? That's, that's what our culture wants to know. And that, that's why they get so bent out of shape when they read stuff like this. But it, it is different, first of all, because God isn't a president. He is God to whom the earth and everything in it belongs. Secondly, the people... Uh, they, they weren't supposed to go in and, and plunder uh, or take slaves. They're not going in there to, to benefit themselves in any way. Uh, it wasn't an imperialistic conquest. And finally, it's because it's impossible to love without also hating to an equal degree. 
And that's something that people have a difficult time understanding. But you cannot love without also hating equally. Let me give you an example. The more I love my wife, the more I hate the idea of losing her. And the more I hate the idea of her being denigrated or, uh, or defiled in some way. And so with a God who personifies love, the real question is, what's the object of his love or objects of his love? And we could answer that in a, in a lot of different ways. God loves his people, which necessarily means that he hates the idea of losing his people. He hates the idea of his people being harmed. He hates the idea of his people being denigrated or defiled in some way. God loves holiness, which necessarily means that he equally has a hatred for iniquity. So because God loves his people, he wants to protect his people from anything that could lead to their defilement. And because he loves holiness, he has an eternal wrath against iniquity. So the Israelites were supposed to go in and take over the land, clear it out, clean it out, destroy the altars, get the people out of there. And there were three primary purposes that would have been served by the Israelites doing this, by them driving the people out of the land and destroying the, the idols. First of all, it would have served as God's judgment against the idolatry of the people in the land. Uh, rather than worshiping Yahweh, these pagan people of the land were worshiping false gods that they had made and that they could exert a certain degree of control over. By the way, don't think that people don't do the same thing today. Maybe not with little carved idols but with whatever their idol might be. They should, have, they should have, have worshipped Yahweh. These pagan people in land should have worshipped Yahweh, but in their unrighteousness they had suppressed the truth about God, which was evident both to them and to everybody else. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God, is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so the first reason that they were supposed to go in and drive the people out, break all the altars, destroy all the altars, set fire to the, to the carved images, was God's judgment against idolatry. Secondly, as we see here, uh, at the very end here in verse 5, uh, the purpose of the Israelites driving the people out was so that the Lord could fulfill the promises that he had made to their forefathers. Uh, they were supposed to go in and take the land. It was rightfully theirs. It had been promised to them. It wasn't partially theirs. It was entirely theirs. Thirdly, the elimination of the Canaanites was intended to protect the Israelites themselves. You know, we're influenced, just like the Israelites would have been, by the surroundings that we have around us. We're surrounded by, by whatever... And those things are going to influence us one way or the other, to some extent or another. And it isn't possible to surround yourself with something that is entirely evil and constantly evil all the time, and yet not be affected by it in some way. Law enforcement officials, for example, they talk about this type of thing all the time. They get jaded. 
because they go out and they're doing the dirty work that none of us have to be exposed to. But they're exposed to the darkest and most evil and corrupt elements of human nature. And they see that all the time. And so it's entirely possible for them, if they're not careful, to get jaded. Uh, and, and so the, the very presence of these pagan, idolatrous Canaanites among the Israelites would have corrupted the Israelites to some extent. And so God, by, by, asking, by telling them to go in and to take the land and to drive the people out and, and do all this stuff, it was to protect them. It was for their own good. It was so they wouldn't be drawn away or influenced by false gods. But the Israelites compromised. And rather than driving the Canaanite people from the land, they allowed the Canaanites to live among them. They put them to forced labor, thinking that they had a better idea than what God had in mind. And they didn't drive the people from the land. They didn't destroy the altars of the people uh, that they had used to, to worship false gods. And so what we ended our previous lesson with was Jesus as the angel of the Lord coming down and, and judging the Israelites disciplining them in response to their blatant and ongoing disobedience. And the people wept. And they made sacrifices to the Lord. And it seemed like, wow, you know, they're, they're getting on the right track. They're making some good steps. This is an improvement. It looks like they are repenting. But it was shallow. And it didn't last long. They hadn't fully turned away from God, but they were far too casual about their obedience to Him. And they didn't make following God a priority in their lives at all. And today's lesson is going to be a portrait of a backsliding nation. And I'm sure that as we go through this passage, as we go through this lesson, you'll see that there are a lot of parallels between Israel backsliding and the way our own nation has experienced a great deal of backsliding as well. The mistakes that Israel made weren't unique to Israel. In fact, we, we've seen this throughout history. We saw it happen in Europe. We've seen it happen in the United States as well. And you'll see these things as we go through this passage. But having seen the, the judgment of Israel at the end of our previous passage, basically chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, the author now backs up almost as if he's anticipating the question, how did all of this happen? How did all, what has gone wrong with Israel? So we back up to a time after Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. So we read in Judges chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Remember, he's, he's backing up. This is kind of like the backstory of how, this all, how it all led to this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Let's just stop there for a second. Obviously, we, we've backed up to more obedient days, more, more faithful days. They went in to take possession of the land and they served the Lord all of their days, all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And so for as long as those uh, who had seen these amazing things firsthand, uh, as long as they stayed alive in Israel, there was a degree of faithfulness among the Israelites. But let's continue, verses 8 and 9. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in, in Timnath Eris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. So Joshua was, was blessed. He was a, a godly, godly man. He had the privilege of living at least for a season and, and dying in the land that they had been promised. And here in verse 8, we see that he was deemed as deserving the best eulogy that any person could possibly be given. He was characterized, his life was summed up as this, the servant of the Lord. What a great thing to have on your, on your tombstone. What a great thing. Great eulogy, great summarization of a person's life. These were good and faithful times for Israel. At least they were better times in comparison to what would lie ahead for the generation that followed after Joshua's. But this generation of Joshua, they had their struggles too. They had experienced their own troubles as they entered into the promised land. They too had been seduced by these idols, by these, these foreign gods of the land. And that's why Joshua spoke the famous words, Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That alone is an indication that there were some real struggles between Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh, and worshiping the gods of the land. But he also issued this warning to his generation. He said this, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And then he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. That's from Joshua chapter 24, verses 19 to 20 and verse 23. And so we'll see today that this is exactly what happens. That God is true to His Word. Obviously, there was an immediate struggle with, with idolatry upon coming into the, uh, the promised land among the Israelites. But Joshua's generation did agree to follow the Lord. But what would be their legacy? What would be left behind? What would they pass on to the next generation? And that's the generation that we're talking about today. That's the generation at hand in our text. And so the next couple of verses summarize exactly what happened. Judges chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And all that generation, talking about Joshua's generation, were gathered to their fathers. They, they, they passed away. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And what we're going to see throughout this book is that history has a tendency of repeating itself. We'll see that uh, in our passage at hand today. We'll see it throughout the entire book. Uh, that's why it's so incredibly important that we study books like this. And then we study history because history does have a way of repeating itself when we become ignorant of it. So we should study this type of stuff, not for the sake of learning moralism, but for the sake of gaining a deeper understanding of God's holiness and His faithfulness in the context of a fallen generation. D.A. Carson uh, observes the, the pattern throughout history. It looks something like this. He says, quote, The first generation has the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, and the third generation loses 
the gospel. End quote. And this is the very pattern that we see here in our text. The generation of Israelites that had been delivered from slavery to Egypt had the gospel. That was Moses' generation. The next generation, the generation of Joshua, assumed the gospel, but there was a struggle. And the current generation has lost it. They've totally turned away from God. And note how the author contrasts the generation which had served the Lord all of their days with this current generation which doesn't even know the Lord. They don't know the things that the Lord has done for Israel. And we see this in our text, but we also see it throughout history. One, one commentator uh, uses the Mennonites as an example. He says the Mennonites had the gospel and believed that there were certain social implications of living it out. The next generation of Mennonites assumed the gospel, but embraced and focused on the social implications. And the third generation's, uh, generation of Mennonites lost the gospel completely, allowing the social implications to become the only thing that they focused on. What a horrible, horrible tragedy. It gets lost between generations. I mean, we've seen the same pattern in Europe. And it's exactly what has happened and continues to happen in our own country as well. The first generation embraces commitment. The following generation embraces complacency. And the third generation embraces compromise. Tim Keller describes this effect using early New England as an example. It's in our country's history before. It's happened before. Nearly all of the early settlers in North America between 1620 and 1640 were God-fearing, God-loving Christian men and women. But in 1662, this generation that had you know, come over to North America started noticing that their children and their grandchildren weren't really walking the walk. They might have been kind of talking the talk, but they weren't walking the walk. They were nominal Christians at best. And the generation after that, even further away from God. And so the question that we have to struggle with is why is there a generational disconnect? Why is there a difference between one generation and the next? Why doesn't the faith get passed on from one generation to the next? Now, parents, we all know that we have certain God-given responsibilities, things that we will be held accountable to one day before God. It's a, it's a stewardship issue with our kids. Solomon said this, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. He said, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he, was, when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, keep in mind, that's a general principle. It's not a promise. And we're going to get to that here in just a minute. But if we, if we demonstrate as parents or grandparents or, or whatever, if we demonstrate that the spiritual disciplines, what, by the way, what am I talking about when I talk about spiritual disciplines? I'm not talking about uh, you know, giving yourself 40 lashes for sinning. That's penance. That's a totally different issue. The spiritual disciplines are things like reading your Bible, praying regularly, uh, going to church Repenting, things like that. If we demonstrate before our kids that these types of things are optional or, or just not a priority at all by our actions, if we teach them that by our actions, it will leave a lasting impression on our kids. See, we are, whether we like it or not, we are training them to be like us based on our actions, whether we like it or not, and whether we are intentional about it or not. And here's the thing. It is so 
much easier to raise our kids to be good, moral, law-abiding citizens than it is to actually get them completely, firmly grounded in their faith. It's so much easier to do behavior modification with kids than it is to help them experience heart transformation. But friends, the Christian life is about heart transformation. It's not about behavior modification. Any one of us, I, I, I could show you in five minutes how to train a monkey to do something, or a, a dog, or an animal, anything. We can do that kind of stuff, but only Jesus can transform a heart. Only Jesus can transform a person's heart. Phil Vischer is the guy who's behind Veggie Tales. Uh, you guys may, may have seen this. We posted an article a couple months ago uh, out in the, the, the lobby area, and we put a bunch of copies of this, uh, this interview, this article out there for you guys. But Phil Vischer, he's the guy behind Veggie Tales, and he said this in an interview. He said, quote, I looked back at the previous 10 years. By the way, everybody familiar with Veggie Tales? Because we can sing the Veggie Tales song, and I think that'll probably spark some memories. No? Okay, we don't have to do that. He said, I I looked back at the previous 10 years and I realized that I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so. Or, hey kids, be more kind because the Bible says so. But that isn't Christianity. It's morality. And that was such a huge shift for me from the American Christian ideal. We're drinking a cocktail that's a mix of the Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel. And we've intertwined them so completely that we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good so God will make all your dreams come true. It's the Oprah God. End quote. When it comes to Veggie Tales, by the way, I, I'm not ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater just yet. I, I do think that there is value to uh, to the Veggie Tales. I think a conversation uh, is probably a good thing after watching the Veggie Tales. Uh, however, as a church leader, as, as a, a pastor, I absolutely despise moralism. I absolutely hate moralism because it ultimately turns people away from God. It doesn't look like it's doing that, but what it's doing is it's focusing on the surface. It's not doing anything to the heart. And this isn't just a problem with our generation or or any particular generation. This is a problem that's existed for centuries. Charles Spurgeon, you know, 19th century uh, preacher, he said, One soul won to Christ is better than a thousand merely moralized and still sleeping in their sins. What I love, I don't, I don't love moralism, I absolutely hate it. What I love is honesty about our brokenness because we are broken. Every single one of us, our kids, we're all broken because that teaches us to constantly look to God and to constantly rely on God and to constantly keep us eager to repent inside. Not, not just change our behavior outside, but to change our hearts What we have here in our text in Judges is a generation of people who have turned away from God. And so the cycle begins. And we're going to look at this cycle as we continue. Uh, Let's continue, verses 12 to 13. And they, this, this generation, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Yikes. What happens when we teach our kids the church is something that we do, not who we are? What happens when we teach our kids that we're supposed to look and dress and speak differently when we gather on Sunday mornings than the way that we look, dress, and speak throughout the rest of the week? What happens is we inadvertently teach them to compartmentalize their lives so that your faith is over here and the rest of you is over here. We teach them to embrace kind of a hypocritical facade because it implies that church isn't a part of who you are. It's something that you, that you do. It's a, it's a role that we play for an hour, maybe two hours every week. And so it's entirely possible to inadvertently put an enormous stumbling block in their walk with Jesus because that's what compartmentalized religiosity does. That's what moralism does. It sets our kids up for spiritual failure. Instead, we have to model authentic faith. Open faith, broken our, our brokenness, our, our, our weaknesses. We, they have to see all that stuff, and they have to see us repent from all those things. We have to model the spiritual disciplines for our kids and invite them into those spiritual disciplines with us. And not just invite them, but to show them. This is why you want to do this. Have you guys ever heard of the show Life Below Zero? Maddie, I know you have because that's one of my favorite shows. It's a show about these Alaskans, people who live in, in these remote places in Alaska. And what they do is they basically live off the land because there's nobody within a, within a gunshot. You know, nobody could hear them. Uh, nobody could see them. Nobody could find them if they went looking for them. Uh, they're, they're all living off the land. And there's one family. It's got, they've got an Eskimo wife. Uh, that's her heritage. She's a, a native Eskimo. And what she does is she, she does all these things, like the, the way that she, that she uh, you know, makes a, a vest out of seal skin or uh, the, the things that they do with caribou. And, and she takes her kids and she has them participating in those things with them. And they, she says, if I don't teach them how to do these things before they're out on their own, they will die. And the same thing, of the, the, the principle there. Uh, the physical principle is spiritually true as well. Our kids have to see this stuff, have to see the importance of it, have to be brought into it. Now, that, that's a two-way street, by the way, and we're going to get to that in, in just a minute. Um, but we have to take these things really seriously. And so the Lord said this to the Israelites after giving them the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, this is a 24-7 thing. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're supposed to be teaching your kid all these things. That's what the Lord says. In other words, basically everything you do. Your, your kids are going to be learning something. So teach them about God and all that you do, everything that you're doing. Joshua's generation knew the Lord. They served the Lord despite their struggles. But the generation that followed after them didn't know the Lord 
And so they ended up doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Whose fault was it? Which generation are you going to blame? Now, I don't think it's possible to really say that the blame falls squarely on anybody's shoulders. I don't think it's always possible to blame, uh, to place the blame squarely on the shoulders of the parents, nor do I think it's always possible or, or necessary to blame the next generation. Parents can do everything that they possibly can to raise up godly kids. But what do you do if the kids harden their hearts anyway? Despite your best efforts, what do you do? You have to hand them over to the Lord. Just say, God, I've done my best. And that's a scary thing. That's what had to be done here. That's what happens here. They hardened their hearts. They turned away from the Lord. And whom did they serve? They ended up serving these false gods, these, these idols of the land. The word Baal, by the way, is the Canaanite word for Lord. So their Lord wasn't God. Their Lord was the Baals. And it seems unlikely that the generation, by the way, had never heard of the Exodus, had never heard of the crossing of the Red Sea or, or the Jordan River or how the walls of Jericho came down. But the word no has several implications in Hebrew. Given the context, I think that we can at the very least conclude that these events were just not viewed as significant to their lives. I can just imagine the younger generation thinking, well, that was then, but this is now. You hear people saying that all the time about the Bible today. You know, this is a, a 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 year old book. What good is it to us today? And so these stories of God's greatness, for some reason, just didn't connect, didn't click with the younger generation. And so they didn't know God. To know someone in the Bible means to have an intimate relationship with one another. Uh, we all know the implications of what it means when a man knows his wife. Uh, and, and so what this means is that this generation didn't have an intimate walk with the Lord. That's what it means when it says they didn't know Him. They didn't have an intimate walk with Him. So no wonder they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What is evil in the eyes of the Lord, by the way? Turning to love and, and serve false gods and idols is evil, if we take our definition from what we read right here. Man, we, I mean, we consider murder evil. We consider you know, maybe having an affair evil, uh, stealing, all these things. We think those things are all evil, but the Lord gets really upset about something that we might not even see on the surface. Idolatry. If only we realized how incredibly evil it is and how that makes God feel when we give something in our lives priority over God. And so this is... The very destination that Deuteronomy chapter 6 was written to avoid. This, was, this should never have happened. Now obviously the kids are going to have to make the decision to embrace the parents' faith for themselves. But when you have an entire generation that turns away from God, an entire generation, I don't think it's unrealistic to assume that somewhere, somehow, the faith of the parents just didn't ring entirely true to the younger generation because the discipleship process should be most vibrant in the home. 
Now, I know there, there are exceptions. I mean, there, there are parents who raise, do everything they can to raise up godly kids, and they've, they've done a great job, and the kids just they harden their hearts, and we don't understand it. I get that. But when you're talking about an entire generation doing that, something is going wrong. See, if we, if we don't prioritize our walk with the Lord, the chances increase exponentially that our children won't either. In other words, parents, we need to intentionally avoid one of the traps that our culture has fallen into. And I'm just going to be forthright and honest with you guys here. We have to be careful not to outsource the spiritual formation of our kids. We all know what outsourcing a job is, right? You you send the job over to, to India instead of hiring here in the United States. And there are so many parents who do that as they're raising their kids as well. A hundred years ago, there was no such thing as youth group. That's something that was invented around the middle of the 20th century. Before that, it was the parents' responsibility. And so the, the, the more authentic and vibrant our walk with the Lord is, the more likely it is to resonate with our kids. That doesn't mean that it's a guarantee. There's, there is no silver bullet here. There's no, there's no magic formula that's going to work every time because kids have a will. They've got, they've got to make decisions for themselves. But I personally, myself, I want to embrace anything and everything that at least increases the chances of my kids having the same faith that I do. And I know you do too. And so things like youth group are great. You know, they, they are beneficial, but don't count on that. This is the main point that I'm making with this. Uh, don't count on youth group as being the main source, the primary source of their discipleship. We can't expect our kids to have a commitment to God, a faith in God, a devotion to God that we aren't cultivating in our own lives. Parents, we are our kids' first source of discipleship. We are, we are the main youth pastor for our kids. We are the first source of discipleship. Do not outsource that job to anybody else because nobody nobody in the entire world is more qualified to lead your kids than you are and so we've got this generational disconnect an entire generation turns away from God to serve the idols of the land what was a struggle for the previous generation becomes a real stumbling block a major issue for the next generation and remember, this is, this is right after the weeping and, and, and the sacrifices that were made to the Lord you know, at, the, at the beginning of the chapter. So how is God going to deal with them this time? Before Jesus came down as the angel of the Lord, how is He going to deal with them now? Now that they have an entire generation that is completely turned away from Him. We continue in Judges chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. We need to understand that while God has grace... He does forgive us 
when we, when we, when we sin, we, when we mess up, because we all mess up. And if we didn't have grace, not one of us would have a chance to stand before Him. But we need to also understand that God does not like to see His people setting their minds and their hearts on something or someone other than Him. And He takes action against that. We need to understand that the Lord takes it very seriously when we put things in His rightful place in our hearts and minds. Because God is a jealous God. In fact, He's so jealous that the Bible tells us that that's one of His names. Uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. He says this, He says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Notice, by the way, that that's in the context of a command against idolatry. His name is Jealous. And we like to think about how God is, is love, but God being jealous makes some people uncomfortable. You can find the clip of Oprah saying, my God isn't a jealous God on YouTube. It makes some people uncomfortable to think that God is jealous. But we need to remember that the biblical definition of jealousy is, quote, to desire what is rightfully one's property. And that's entirely different from envy or covetousness, which means to desire what is not rightfully the property of an individual. And so we might not like the fact that God is a jealous God, but we have to see His grace in His jealousy. Because it means, the implication is that if He's jealous for us, we are His. We are rightfully His. And so He wants back what is rightfully His. And there's grace in that. And so out of his jealous anger, he hands them over to their sin. Sounds a lot like Romans chapter 1, by the way. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, you want to worship these gods? Go ahead. Let's see how they're going to protect you when you need help. See, the awful thing about idolatry is the fact that our idols will leave us helpless in our crisis situations in our times of greatest need. They are powerless to do anything for us. And so who gives the Israelites strength? Who gives them wisdom or guidance when the people of the land come in to overtake them? I, I suppose you could say that the false gods were, the, the idols uh, did everything that they could do to protect the Israelites, which is the same as saying nothing at all. They, they had no protection at all. And so the Israelites are plundered and overtaken and they get sold into slavery to their enemies. And by the way, idolatry always leads to slavery. I don't care what your God is. If it's your job, if it's money, whatever. It will lead to slavery. Now that's the literal picture here, but figuratively speaking, it's true in our lives today as well. And so instead of God being for the Israelites... He was against them constantly because He is against sin constantly. But we have to see that God's discipline is aimed at bringing His people back to Him. And that's what it does. It brings them back to Him again. The people, here we see, they're in terrible distress. After all is said and done, they're in terrible distress. And what happens when God's people find themselves in a place of distress? They start praying. They start crying out to God. And He hears their cries. And this is actually a pattern that we'll see repeatedly throughout this book. Israel will do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord will hand them over to the hands of their enemies. Israel will serve that enemy until they cry out to Him 
in distress. And what does God do? He raises up judges. Judges chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. See, that's a response, by the way. They were in distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, it's interesting that they're called judges because they're not judicial figures. Like They're, they're not the modern-day equivalent of the guys who wear the long black robes and who oversee court, uh, court proceedings. Rather, they were spiritual leaders that God would raise up for two reasons. Number one, he would raise them up to deliver God's people from the hand of their enemies. And number two, he would raise them up uh, to be a living example and an advocate for godly living. And what we'll see as we go through this book, this is kind of a, a general summarization of, of this pattern. What we'll see as we go through, uh, through this book is that each one of the judges is a sinner. Each one of them is a, is a flawed person. And each of them despite their failures, and sometimes because of their failures, they point to our need for a perfect Savior. They are all a foreshadowing of sorts for the day when the Son of God would take on flesh and deliver His people. But as we'll see, the judges that God raised up in Israel didn't have a lasting influence. Verse 17, Yet they, the Israelites did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And so throughout the book of Judges, this is where the cycle repeatedly leads, and that's why it's called a cycle, because it repeats itself over and over and over again. The people end up right back where they started, in disobedience. Let's continue, verses 18 and 19. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Notice here in verse 19 that there's a, a spiraling effect where it, it kind of starts with a smaller spiral and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. They're, they're becoming more corrupt than the previous generation. The judge would deliver the people because the Lord had, had, pitied, uh, had pitied the people when he heard their distressful groanings. And when the judge died, the people would turn further away from God than the previous generation had been. And they would be even more corrupt than their fathers, doing the same things to a greater extent than their fathers had maybe once done. They were pursuing idols. They were serving those idols. They were worshiping false gods to an increasingly and increasingly greater extent. Remember what Jesus, as, as the angel of the Lord, had warned the people at the beginning of the chapter. He said that the people of the land will be a thorn in their side and that their gods, their idols, would be a snare for them. And as this cycle goes on and on and on, people don't get better. They don't become better people. They don't become more godly people. Rather, they get worse. The thorn digs a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper, and a little bit deeper. And the snare 
Traps tighter and tighter and tighter. They'll become more sinful and more rebellious than previous generations. And so what we'll see is that as the book goes on, the judges themselves become progressively more and more and more flawed. That's why I say this isn't a book about moralism. This isn't teaching us to be like the judges in any way. Rather, the judges are pointing to Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to see. And this is all a reminder to each of us. This whole cycle, this whole passage, it's a reminder to each of us that we cannot free ourselves. And we need someone who will lead us and who will never die so that our faith doesn't wilt away like a plant without a root under the hot, scorching sun. We need someone who can deliver us, who can free us, who can lead us, someone who will never forsake us, somebody who will never give up on us. And there is no such judge in the entire book of Judges. But there is one who died on a cross to redeem for himself a people. And he rose from the grave three days later to prove that he was the acceptable sacrifice and that we are forgiven in him. He ascended into heaven. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's our mediator. He alone is our deliverer, our Lord, our Savior. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can redeem. Only Jesus can deliver us from our greatest enemy. And for that reason, He alone is worthy of our worship and our greatest affection. He alone is worth living for. And so when we read a passage like this, an awful passage, a scary passage, our response Regardless of where we may be in the generational cycle, or are we number one, two, three, you know, what are we? Regardless of where we are, our response is to live a life that is more fully committed to living for the glory of God and to take the whole process of discipleship really seriously, hoping that the next generation catches on that they won't harden their hearts against God, but that our faith gets passed on to the people who come after us. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, many of us parents, God, I know the fear. I know the the frustration uh, of, of raising up our kids to love you. And Lord, we fail uh, on our own. We fail on our own because we're broken. But I pray, God, for our kids. I pray for, um, for us as parents that we would be like the judges, that we would Try, try, Lord, to direct our kids toward you and to be an advocate for godly living. Lord, we, we thank you that you have delivered us from the chains of sin. We thank you, Lord, that you have set us free from, from death and that death has no power over us anymore because of you. 
And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to live out our faith more boldly and with more authenticity in order that you would be glorified, Lord. And we pray for this next generation, God. We pray knowing that our country is in a spiritual decline, a spiritual freefall. And Lord, only you can save them. And so we pray, God, that you would just draw this next generation to yourself, that they would be a generation that embraces commitment and devotion to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.